Should you treat childhood toe walking? That's what we're talking about today on The Working Therapist. Welcome to The Working Therapist, a podcast designed to help you grow in your therapy practice. The Working Therapist is an extension of the Pediatric Developmental Therapy Network. Now here are your hosts, Hayden Bolick and Kirsty Miles. Thanks for listening. Today we are talking about toe walking in this podcast, which I think is a pretty exciting topic. I know for a speech therapist, maybe not always the most exciting, but I think it's exciting because it causes me as a speech therapist to look at the whole body and think of the child as a whole body situation, right? And I really like that. So I'm super excited. So when you talk about toe walking, Kirsty, what specifically are you talking about? We see this a lot on referrals and it might come over as uh, just toe walking. It might come over written as idiopathic toe walking, Mm -hmm. which idiopathic means no known cause. So we might see gait abnormality on there. So sometimes you got to keep an open mind when you get that referral. (laughs) Have you gotten a referral that says toe walking and they're not walking on their toes? Sometimes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or usually it's gait abnormality is what we see a lot. We don't see toe walking so much as gait abnormality because, you know, you got to keep in mind the physician sees that doesn't look right. And I'm going to send them to the people that know how people walk and the physician seeing like a tons and tons of patients all day long they're just like look here you go there Mm -hmm. so they're looking at pt as the expertise in this area Mm -hmm. so they want a full assessment on the way they're walking which is what we do but we do we see a lot of gait or abnormality idiopathic toe walking toe walking those are pretty much the common diagnoses that'll come over on the referral so toe walking is walking on your toes yep (laughs) not making heel contact so then it's the pt's job like why? And you got to go in with an open mind. Mm. You can't assume, oh, they have a diagnosis of autism. So They're that just goes toes. along with toe walking. Okay. You got to do all the digging. You said in other podcasts where you sit and look at how people walk and stuff. Oh, I can't help it. If you pay attention, and I don't know. So you can see people who are more forward on their feet, right? Or what do you call when they're not like up high on their toes, but they tend to walk on the balls of their feet. Is that toe walking? Or? It probably could be. I watch people doing an exercise video and I'll watch how they'll do an exercise. And I'm like, their heel cords are tight. (laughs) I'll watch them do a burpee and I'm like, oh, look at how they toe out their feet and they hit the ground before their heels have to come in contact with the ground. So they're compensating and it's just natural to do. Okay. Well, good. So really walk it on your toes. Mm -hmm. Toe walking. Okay. So we have to differentiate then. We have to keep an open mind. We ask the questions historically. Really, it comes to what can't they do? And so when you start digging into what can't they do, well, it might just be, hey, they walk on their toes and can't get their heel down. Well, why can't they get their heel down? The first thing I always check if I get a gait abnormality or toe walking, I always check for clonus. Because so many times when you say idiopathic toe walking, that means no known cause. Well, to me, if there's an underlying neurological condition, clonus, that's a referral back to neuro. So there is a cause for the toe walking. The clonus is the cause for the toe walking. Now, I don't diagnose. I can find a sign or symptom and I can refer back to neuro. I don't know what that is stemming from. So that means they need to go back to the doctor. They need to go to neuro for further diagnostics because usually a sign of clonus, upper motor neuron lesion is linked to something happening in the brain. So again, that's not my area, but it's my area to find that. I always check for clonus with toe walking. Usually I find it, Really? To be honest. Yeah. Huh. I find it more often than I don't. Really? Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. So I'm always going to check for clonus. 
I check the range of motion because I want to say, do we have heel cord range of motion? Because for functional activities, you're going to need at least 10 to 20 degrees of dorsiflexion to be able to go up and down stairs, to squat down to the floor, to do functional activities, to do like a lunge. Not that that's really functional, but to go up and down the stairs, to squat, to pick up something from the floor. Those are functional activities. To stand, I've seen kids with heel cords that are so tight, so severe that they can't even get to neutral. They can't mm. even get to 90 can, degrees. So right? their heel's on the floor and their calf is above them. For their heel <laughs> to be on the floor, mm -hmm. they are literally here. So they've been over so at the hip. So they hips. compensate at the hip and lean over at the hip because their body weight is so far back. Because if I'm standing at 90, I'm here. But if I can't get to 90, my whole center of mass now shifts back. Is that why people hyperextend their knees? No, not no. necessarily. No. So it would be more at the hips where the hips would, they would lean mm -hmm. over at the hips. Yep. Hmm. Hmm. And that was in severe cases. So I think you also have got to always considering functionally, what can't we do? You know, when I was younger, roller skating was a big thing. You would see these people who could roller skate and they could squat and like skate in a squat, you know? Hayden's going to tell me right now she couldn't squat. No, I could not. And so, and I always <laughs> think, I was like, oh man, my body just doesn't do that. I think I had tight heel cords. I mean, we know now because I have issues, but whatever. But I think just some people can do that and some people can't. I guess just my body doesn't do that. But I didn't know it was normal. I didn't know if people were supposed to be able to do that. I just was like, yeah, lucky them. Wow, that's awesome. They can do that. I thought it was a balance problem. We used to call it shoot the duck. Like you would squat down and, and then put you your foot put out. one foot out. That was the advanced level. I just wanted to be able to squat and go around the skating rink once. <laughs> like in the circle one time. I never could because I would fall on my rear ends. I couldn't get a squat. So she has tight heel cords. Yes. Can't squat down. <laughs> right. So those are the functional reasons that I measure range of motion. Mm. And a lot of times you're going to find that there's a deficit and mm. you have to, the, the gastroc soleus is a complex. You have your gastroc muscle, the soleus underneath, and you have to measure both. Is it when the leg is straight? I don't have range of motion. That's gastroc soleus. I have my knee bent and I measure range of motion. So there's two muscles. You got to check them both because mm -hmm. it could be that the soleus is tight too. And then sometimes you can toe walk as a compensation because again, kids are super smart. So they're going to compensate. They're going to figure it out. If they have a weakness at the core, the hip, the quad, they might, or in the intrinsics of the foot, they might get up on their toes to lock that mechanism out so they have stability in their foot. So that's what they would be in. So when you say kids are smart, then that's what they're figuring out. If they have weakness in all of those, they're getting up on their toe to, and then that gives them some kind of stability that they didn't have before because of the other they're not stuff having yet. to use muscles they're hanging on ligaments and ah. locking out joints mm. so when you go up on your tippy toes you also tend to lock at the knee and when you lock at the knee you don't have to work as hard physically so yeah there's some compensations would you say that kids who w sit are more likely to walk on their toes than not i don't think that's always the case i think kids that are w sitters you have to look for towing in because mm, mm -hmm. you get hip internal rotation and if mm. they get tight in there then a lot of times they'll be your toe inners i think those are things that you got to watch for well i looked at that thought about that because of core strength but you're talking more like than just i was just thinking like weakness mm -hmm. okay that makes sense that's why i connected those dots okay normal behavior though when they're learning to walk they're learning to do toe raises they're little they're trying to reach the top of the counter and pull things down that they shouldn't have you know it's normal behavior to raise up onto your toes but you should see a consistent heel strike by about 18 months of age if it's prolonged if we're going in and out of it and we relax down and we have range of motion necessarily going to intervene. We're going to monitor that, but we're not going to be like, oh, they need PT. Their range of motion is normal. They don't have a deficit. They're kind of 
up on their toes, but down. They're going back and forth between the two. That's not necessarily a reason to jump in and intervene right away. But if they are now age two, three, still walking on their toes, now we're gonna start to see if that's their primary means of walking, they're gonna get tighter in the heel cords. We've got to continue monitoring that, but again, going back and testing for clonus and some of these other things to make sure there's not an underlying pathology. So I've heard where some PTs will say, well, don't put shoes on them too early, that kind of thing. Do you think putting shoes on babies too early causes them to be toe walkers or not really? I don't think that that will cause them to be toe walkers. I think we get so much sensation and feedback through our feet. Mm -hmm. I think it is important to be barefoot, but what are you gonna do for the parent that sends their child to daycare and the daycare requires them to be in shoes? All I right. mean, that's part of safety. Yeah. And <laughs> some of those baby shoes are so cute. I mean, how are you going to not buy those things? My, my lordy, that was my problem. I was like, there's just so stinking cute. <laughs> but you can kind of meet in the middle and say, you know, when you're at home, yeah, take their shoes and socks off. But I'll also then encourage parents to give them more input through the bottoms of their feet. Change up the rags you're doing in the bathtub. Wash them. See, again, I go to the bathroom. Oh, my gosh. Kirstie does everything in the bathroom or the hallway. But go I do, ahead. because the tub. A lot. confined space. Listen to, listen to other podcasts. And she talks about be in the bathroom or the hallway all the time. <laughs> all the time. But I'll take different types of washcloths. So, you know, you typically get your baby washcloths. They're real soft. But adult washcloths are not always right. that soft. Mm -hmm. So using different textures, not on their whole body, but on the bottom of their feet, just to get them used to different sensations, that even before sense. they're walking. Right. Even those little soft little rubbery things, too. You know, they have, I see those all the time in baby stores now, but we sell mm -hmm. them, too. I can't remember what they're called, but they're just like these little rubbery with little soft little things on them. Nubbies. Nubbies. <laughs> they feel good to your hands. They sold in baby stores for bath time. Again, all the different textures. I mean, you're thinking all the different textures. You do lotions after bath. You know, sometimes people are like, get the lavender lotion or whatever, nighttime soothing, rub the bottoms of their feet. Again, it's just giving them sensory to the bottoms of the feet because there is some research out there to show that uh, idiopathic toe walkers don't respond as well to the vibrations. Mm. So for whatever reason, they have that decreased vibration perception threshold, and that is found more in idiopathic toe walkers. So we're saying idiopathic, meaning there's no clonus, there's no known cause. So again, you got to differentiate between the two, but they're finding that they respond less. So they're going to need more exposure to sensory input. So that makes sense. And it's fun. And you can talk about it. See, the speech and language person comes out. So I'm thinking you can talk about different things related to all that. And it's a great social interaction and develop pragmatic social skills. All that's good. Speech people will be very happy with you. And so what OT because of textures? Sometimes even before, um, Hayden, and you can speak to this too, like you've seen that infant that they'll they'll ride their hands and make and a circle, and, circle mm -hmm. and they do it with their feet too. Yep. And they'll be sitting and they'll, they'll have their feet out and they'll start moving their Just feet. Just when they get excited. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so if they keep their feet like toes pointed down when they're in sitting and I'm like, ooh, hmm. That's, is that jogging some precursors for possible toe walking? So then I'll start talking to the parent about joint compressions through the feet and exposure right. to different surfaces because we don't want to get to that point. We want to prevent as much as possible. We mm. always believe in early intervention, intervening early, and I'm not really like a let's watch and see. Right. No, I mean, if we can do something about it early. When I see kids do that too, when the kids make their hands go in circles and they make them go so hard in a circle, you know, like when they get excited, usually you see kids when they get excited, they'll not hand flapping, but they'll actually rotate their wrist mm -hmm. and make their hands go in a circle, but they do it really hard. I always interpret that as early seekers. So I always do a little 
firmer pressure through things because I just kind of think they're seeking some of that, you know, giving them some input. Mm-hmm. Yep. You can do, do it with your feet. Yeah. Joint compressions. I actually start the joint compressions, having them sit in your lap and then put their feet flat on the floor, kind of like they're sitting on a bench, but they're fully supported with you and you lean forward and push through their knees and they're getting their foot contact with the floor on the wood floor, on the carpet floor, on the tile floor. You get different temperatures, different textures. It's all important to development. And they usually like it. And they're also their foot and their ankle and everything's in alignment and they're with their knee and all that stuff. Yeah, I do the exact same thing. And some of the other things to watch for, the child that you go to sit down on the grass and they just pull their feet up and they're yes. like, nope, nope. Do they not want you to put them down because they're clingy to you? Or do they not like the textures? Because that should clue you into we should probably do something about this sooner than later. Right. Because are they going to be a toe walker because they're decreasing sensations to the bottom of their foot and then they're going to be sensitive. So typically, if I'm treating toe walking, idiopathic or with clonus, and they've been a toe walker, they haven't had all the textures on the bottom of their feet. So we've got to desensitize them with different things. So then do you usually do that in PT or do you refer for OT? or I do that in PT. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But you got to hone in on, are there other areas too? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if they're not wanting to touch stuff with their hands and I'm not saying, oh, I only deal with the feet, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. but is it impacting other areas? So if they're not touching different textures, are they also not eating different textures? It just starts cueing you in to ask more questions to make the appropriate referral because I can't be so narrow-minded and focused that, oh, well, I only am looking at the feet. I don't care about the rest of the body. Right, exactly. No, I was going to say the exact same thing. You have to kind of clue into the other stuff that's happening. So then knowing that, there's different ways to treat depending on what we find. If we have a toe walker that's kind of in and out of toe walking, not really locked in, they're really little, it's important to make the parent aware, to do activities, to squat to retrieve from the floor and put things into everyday life that are going to help develop and maintain heel cord length without necessarily any further intervention. That's where clinical decision-making comes in. If we're starting to see a deficit in range of motion loss though, what happens when they get to be an adult? They can't roller skate and squat down and go around the rink. (laughs) It's a real problem. It's a real problem. (laughs) Or teenager or whatever the case may be. You know, as an adult, can they squat down and pick up something? Or as an older child, if it's severe, can they go up and down the stairs safely, one foot in front of the other, showing a mature gait pattern on the stairs? or safety on the stairs, because you got to think, can this child carry an object up and down the stairs, putting only one foot on the step, or are they going to do step two or sidestep because they have lost the range of motion? Now we're dealing with a safety concern. If we start to creep into that category, knowing you need 10 to 20 degrees of range of motion to squat down and go up and down the stairs safely, if we're at five degrees of range of motion, well, we're at a deficit to be able to do those things functionally and safely. So then we have to intervene. So then how? And is it only on one foot versus both? Because I have seen that in clinic where I find clonus on one foot, not the other. There's Hmm. decreased range of motion. They're toe walking, but really it's stemming from one foot because you're not going to toe walk on one foot if there's something happening. Then you got the whole pirate thing. Uh Uh That would be weird. You're going to mirror what you're doing on the other side of the body. Right. So again, there's reasons to refer back to neuro if you find that clonus, but no clonus, idiopathic, sometimes, (laughs) and again, you know, I've seen a lot of toe walking over Mm -hmm. the years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you don't have the range of motion 
to elicit an underlying clonus. Because you look at this child and you're like, there's delays in other areas. This is not just a toe walker. Just a toe walker is typically going to be more possibly sensory. But if you're seeing multiple areas of delays, I gather that there's probably some underlying clonus here, but I don't have the range of motion to even elicit it because they're so, so tight. We're going to work to get the range of motion because functionally they need it anyway, but I'm also hypothesizing that once I get it, I'm going to be able to elicit it and then we're going to neuro mm. because now I've found a neurological sign. So do you think if they're that tight, can they get there by like just regular stretching if the family's doing a home or are you thinking about bracing? We'll try it first. Mm. We will try stretching alone first for a couple of weeks. You know, it takes 12 weeks to make changes in a muscle, whether it be strength or range of motion. But if we're going through six weeks of therapy with just range of motion, and we're not seeing any improvement in range, right. because they're spending so much of their day on their toes, we're gonna have to do something else. Right. So oftentimes the first plan that we do here at PDT and it is based on research. There is a lot of conflicting research out there. But if we say, okay, least invasive, because that's what we do in therapy world first is go for the least invasive. We're going to do a night splint. Right. And that's going to be our first avenue. If it's a fixed contracture, meaning we have bony block, we're not going to gain any range of motion anyway. That's your surgical candidate. But we're saying, hey, we have the ability to gain range. We need a prolonged stretching program. So we're going to work towards a night splint. Mm. Well, you can't throw bilateral night splints on a child anyway. We're going to have to build up to wearing these. They're going to throw them back at you if you throw that at yeah. them. They'll be like, I'm not doing that. And I have heard orthodontists say, well, just wait until they fall asleep and then put these night splints on the kids while they're sleeping. And I was like, I want to build a level of trust with a child and like ease them into this. So my process is going to be very, very different mm -hmm. because I don't need a five-year-old not trusting me. And then like, that's the long haul because right. we're in this for the long haul, you know, we're going to start out with wearing it dinner time or for a TV show and be like, see, it's not that painful. And we're going to start out with one foot on this night. And the next night we're going to do the other foot if it's bilateral. And we're going to jump back and forth. And I'm going to help the parents come up with a plan to do that, whether it be a calendar or some sort of Something. signal that we can remember. I go back to my days of nursing my kids and I used to wear a hairband on one wrist and then switch <laughs> yeah. it to the other and back. <laughs> when we had to rotate them in the crib, put the binky at one end of the crib and the next, whoever went and got the baby out puts the binky at the other ends what end of the bed to lay the head down at you know right, yep. just like simple little cues Easy that we things, can remember yep. so I'll often talk about those with families but we got to ease them into wearing this night splint if we are still seeing absolutely no improvements with range of motion then I'm going to refer to an orthotist for possible Botox serial casting or Botox night splint wearing hmm depending mm. on their recommendation. Mm. And those are in more severe cases. I was telling you at the beginning about this little guy. He was so severe. He's not a surgical candidate because he had a syndrome with a heart condition that he was not eligible to go under mm. Yeah, anesthesia. Well and his insurance would not approve Botox. But when you write all that to the insurance company that he is not a surgical candidate and not functional, when he is a very, very intelligent child and he's getting made fun of in middle school, it's affecting his social abilities right. to engage with people. He's at the middle school level. He's a smart kid and he can't get around. You got to do something. Insurance approved it. And that would certainly be medical necessity. Yes. Really what other case is there he's but that? He's not a surgical candidate, which right. they would have covered, which it's crazy. is crazy. But it's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, he did. He gained a lot of range of motion he did so he could stand 
this kid couldn't stand in place. Oh. He would dance around almost, mm. you know, um, because he couldn't be still because it hurt. Right. It mm. hurt for him to stand. And that's like one of your severe cases. And so obviously that's not the bulk of what you're going to see. But I just think it's important to know that you start with the least invasive and kind of work your way up. And sometimes you get a kid that's so severe off the get-go that they can't even stand. You know that that's where you're going to end up going. Right. Yeah, so you kind of make sense. There is different research out there that says eventually these kids are going to be surgical candidates. If you really spend the time educating the family on what the needs are, I think you can at least postpone it. it well, you just give them a fighting chance for something different, you mm-hmm. know, especially if you paint the picture of long-term versus short-term. And you stand to get more buy-in. Yeah, and in cases where you do have children that have clonus, no matter what you do, you can tell them all day long, on your heels, on your heels, on your heels. Clonus is neurological. As soon as you hit the ball of the foot, you get that quiver. They are going to go up on their toes so that they don't trip and fall. Because what happens is when that clonus kicks in, they go into plantar flexion and through gait, you automatically, you push off and then you dorsiflex your toe to bring your leg through swing phase of gait. Well, a child that kicks in clonus because they put pressure on the ball of the foot, they're going to catch their toes. So rather than me tripping and falling and catching my toes and having my peers laugh at me, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to walk on my toes because I'm not falling anywhere. Right. I'm already on them. So the clonus, whatever. (laughs) Plus it probably would feel weird, don't you think? Mm -hmm. I guess. Well, and I've had patients that are older that have had clonus that can tell you it feels like a Charlie horse. Mm. It feels like their calf goes into spasm. Right. And nobody likes that. That feels terrible. No, it hurts. Oh, that's terrible. I don't think you can just leave it alone and not intervene. I mean, if a child's fussy and crying, well, that Charlie horses hurt when yeah, your leg spasms. Hurt. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> so <laughs> you have a couple of options. You can do range of motion alone. You can do a night splint. You can do Botox and serial casting, Botox and night splints. Surgery is the final option. But also you can wear a splint during the day, like an AFO. And there's a couple of options for that as well. They make ones now for idiopathic toe walking (laughs) where it comes up the back of the leg just enough just to give some pressure on the calf and make it just a little bit of an uncomfortable feeling. It's more of just a feedback mechanism (laughs) to keep their heel in contact with the floor. But if a child has clonus again, they might need more of a full AFO just because the clonus kicks in and they're going to be up on their toes. So you have to look at bracing as an option in certain circumstances. I don't think every child that's a toe walker needs a brace, but I think you have to kind of keep an open mind as you're working with your patients because there's not a one size fits all. It's not like this is what we do for every patient that's an idiopathic toe walker. This is what we do for every patient that is presents with clonus. I think it's very individual again for what children need because it depends on how much range of motion is lost neurologically, how many beats of clonus are there. You have to take into consideration a lot of factors and never what we do is a one-size-fits-all. No, I've not yet found a cookie-cutter situation where you do this for everybody. You always and never, and everybody usually doesn't always ever fit. (laughs) So if you want a flow sheet for when to do what, there really isn't one. No. No, I mean, well, it's every child's different. Their bodies are different. And so even though you've got some principles that can be the same and the similarities across the board, every body is different. And so the way you have to adapt the plan of care should be patient-specific. Mm -hmm. So it can't be for everybody. So with the insurance company not wanting to pay for that, sometimes insurance companies want there to be like, okay, 
toe walker, boom, you do this. This is the protocol. Where there can be a protocol, but you have to modify it for the patient because you've got people. People are behind the issue and what issues they have in going to home. But it's safe to say that it doesn't just resolve itself usually. No. Mm-mm. No. So it needs treatment. Well, because as they get to be teenagers, these are your patients that end up toe out gait. Because Mm -hmm. they have such tight heel cords that they're going to rotate from the hip because as you walk, you want to maintain contact with the floor. Mm -hmm. And if you can't get to the floor and progress over your tibia when you're walking, you're going to toe out so that you just push off. So you walk like a duck more. Which you're walking like a duck and you're pushing off the medial side of your foot. You could get bunion formation. You could get all sorts of things happening as a result of, hey, we should have fixed those tight heel cords when you were like three. It's not going to be a pretty sandal foot one day. I'm just going to tell you. It's just not. It's not going to be a pretty sandal foot. (laughs) So while research out there is kind of like, you know, they're on the fence of, yeah, intervention helps or no, it really doesn't help. If you can minimize some toe out a little bit to decrease the likelihood of bunion formation in like a 12-year-old. Arthritis too. Why not too? do it? Yeah. Oh, or bunion foot in a 12-year-old. Yeah, I was thinking longer term, like arthritis and adults and all that. Oh, yeah. I'm, I, sorry. I kind of stopped at 21, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking post-21 because you know arthritis is going to kick in somewhere in those joints because they're not using them like they're supposed to. They did a research study a while back that adults with tight gastrox and soleus result in other conditions because they have foot pain and lower quality of life. If you take somebody with foot pain, are they going to go out and run? Probably not. It hurts. If things hurt, we stay away from it. So now we just have an excuse. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's my, I like it. Two cents on toe walking. Good. I think that's great information. It's in a nutshell. It's very functional. So as you are listening, I hope that that will help you in your practice of dealing with kids who are toe walkers and maybe look at them a little bit differently, a little bit broader in some ways, and also more narrow in terms of how to work on different issues. Yeah, that's good, Kirsty. Thanks. That was helpful. Yeah. I like it. I think it's very interesting. Like I said, I think feet in general are super interesting. Well, I'm a PT, so I think feet are cool. I think feet are really <laughs> cool. But anyway, I think they're very, hands and feet, I just think they're fascinating for a speech therapist, but I just think it's very cool. Anyway, but that was great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Really good information. Very specific and helpful. So check out other podcasts just like this one on our website, The Working Therapist. You, you can take a detour through our website, which is Pediatric DT, and then get to The Working Therapist website. And there's bunches of topics on there. So check those out and we will catch you next time on another episode of the working therapist thanks for joining us for today's edition of the working therapist an extension of the pediatric developmental therapy network for more information or to contact us visit us online at www.pediatricdt.com that's pediatricdt.com